Well, good morning. As you can see up on the uh, projector here, we've got a podcast of these uh, lessons. So if you are uh, missed something or you'd like to go back and, uh, and uh, ruminate or catch something or argue with the points or whatever, uh, it's on the iTunes. You can look up Athens to Jerusalem and it's got all these lessons on it. So <clears throat> that's something that uh, you can uh, pursue at your leisure. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for your gathering with us today. And that you are a high priest that's faithful in all things. And you're there for us. And I pray today that we'll just get a little glimpse of how there you are for us. And just get some muscle memory to go to you first. Instead of the trite little things we tend to substitute for you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the book of Hebrews. We've seen that we've got a letter here. I, I claim it's from Paul. But it's certainly from somebody in that circle to some very good friends <clears throat> who have gotten a little hard of hearing. <clears throat> and what Paul's doing is setting up for these Jew, very Jewish friends, and he's going to give a very Jewish letter here. He calls it at the end a brief word of exhortation. And he, what he sets up is this amazing uh, scenario, this amazing picture of Jesus as the Son. And we talked about how this phrase, the Son, is really an ancient sort of uh, um, prescription of a great king adopting in a, in a not in a familial sense, but in a realm sense, adopting uh, another another important person into his realm to help him reign. There's this phrase: "I am uh, today. I have begotten you. I shall be to you a father. You shall be to me a son." That these ancient potentates used for someone that they wanted to honor as a faithful servant in their realm. That's going to help them reign. And he sets up Jesus as having won that title because of faithfulness and obedience from the Heavenly Father, the Son. He contrasts the Son to the angels. He says, well, to which of the angels has he ever said, you're my Son, today I've begotten you? We talked about, of course, that Jesus was never begotten in a birth sense. He's from everlasting. He's the creator. He's the first and the last. But he was begotten in this honor sense. And how did he get that honor? He obeyed his father. This is who has talked to us in this most recent time period, uh, Paul says. You got the Old Testament through the angels. And everything that happened in the Old Testament happened just like God said it was going to. If God said, if you uh, gave you a consequence for behavior, it happened. He said, if, if you uh, leave the land, you won't be blessed. They left the land, they weren't blessed. It happened, just like he said. How much more if we hear things through the sun? Is it going to happen just like God said? So, don't be hard of hearing. Give heed to the things you've learned, lest you drift away. Because there's this great salvation you can neglect. What is the great salvation? Well, these are already believers. We've seen that these believers are not only just nominal believers. They lost their possessions and were glad. They lost their possessions and were thankful. Why? Because they know they have a more enduring possession in heaven. These, these are not nominal believers. But there's a salvation that they're about to neglect. It's not salvation from hell. It's salvation from futility. And what futility is it? It's the futility of the fall. We're supposed to be the reigners over creation. We're supposed to have perfect harmony with animals. We're supposed to have perfect harmony with birds and fish. And with one another. And it's not happening right now. We went through Psalm 8. 
And we showed how Paul takes Psalm 8 to lay out this scenario that's supposed to be. And then he says, but we do not now see things like this. But what do we see? We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. See, we're supposed to have the glory and honor just by virtue of our position. Psalm 8 says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've made these low creatures and you crowned them with glory and honor by letting them reign over the universe. But now we do not see that. But we see Jesus crowned for the, with glory and honor. He has been placed in this position as Son, who for the suffering of death was crowned with glory and honor. It's this obedience to the suffering of death that has given Jesus a name above every name. And His goal is to bring many sons to the same glory. And this is a salvation that can be neglected because this is a reward for faithful obedience. And a reward for faithful obedience is only given to people who are faithfully obedient. So now, the question is, well, so how do we do that? I get it. The Son was faithful. I get it. Jesus wants to give us that same honor to follow His path. How do I do that? What does that look like? So we come to chapter 3, and he says in chapter 3, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. And what the punchline of today is going to be is that this confession, which is the Greek word homologia, homologia, however you pronounce it, Uh, It just means to agree with something, to be a partaker with something. To be uh, not a a partaker, uh, that's a different word. To be in unity with something. Uh, I looked in the LXX, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, looking for this word. And I found a place where it was used to describe the Israelites who had come to confess the queen of heaven which was a pagan deity so we've got this confession this agreement and who are we going to agree with the world or Jesus but he's our high priest and the bottom line of today is this is how we get there this is what it looks like what we tend to do as humans is something that psychologists call substitution Uh, And I could go into great depth about this. I'm just going to mention it. If you want to know all about it, read this book called Thinking Fast and Slow. It's a very fascinating book about how we we as humans behave uh, mentally. And one of the things we do, this substitution, is if we have a difficult problem, instead of trying to grapple with and solve the difficult problem, we substitute an easy problem. Marketers understand this. And they get us to take a difficult problem like I'm depressed or I'm, I've, I've, I feel like a failure. And we substitute something easy for it. Buy my product. Just a few dollars and it all goes away. Well, that's what these Hebrews are doing. They're substituting something easy for something difficult. But the answer is not to substitute. The answer is to actually solve the problem. We see Jesus, who for the suffering of death has been crowned with glory and honor. Follow that. But we see Jesus crowned for glory and honor, crowned with suffering and death. That's a very difficult thing to do. How is that? How in the world are we going to do that? We're going to do it just one way. There's really only one way to make this work. And that is to rely on the high priest. That's the punchline for today. But let's fill in the blanks. You uh, went through chapter 3 last week with Mike. And I'm just going to focus in on a couple things from chapter 3 because it's a continuity with chapter 4. Let's look at four if statements in chapter 3 briefly. There's four if statements. 
chapter 3. Got to get my uh, iPad up here. And these if statements really set up the whole scenario for us of what our basic proposition is. So, let's look at chapter 3, verse 7, and chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear His voice. Okay, so what's the point there? If you will hear His voice. What's the question? Are you going to hear His voice? And there's two options. What are they? Yes and no. Uh, You can hear his voice, you cannot hear his voice. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. You can harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And if you do, we do, we'll get the consequences of that. Verse 15, while it is said, Today... If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's repeating the same thing over again. It's a big point. When is the day to not harden your heart and listen? Today. That's the day that you can actually act. Today. So there's an if statement on either side of this. Or sorry, in in, one one and three, one, one, two, I've just read you two and four. Verse 6, but Christ as a son over his whole house, own house, the ruler over his own house, whose house we are if. I think you looked last week at this house word. In this case, perhaps it means realm. We're part of Jesus' realm, this reigning realm, even now, by faith. If. We hold fast the confidence and we can be receive this reward of being crowned with glory and honor. The same thing that Jesus got for being faithful. If we hold fast to the end. And then again in verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of the confidence steadfast to the end. Now I want to look at this word partakers a bit because of our evangelical upbringing, uh, Billy Graham crusades, emphasis on coming to salvation initially, the new birth, and the constant focus on the new birth. Uh, The question of have you been born again being the preeminent question. We tend to take verses like this and focus in on them as are you born again. And this word partaker here really is not talking about that. You obviously have to be born before you can be someone's companion. But you can be born and not be someone's companion. And this word here is the word metakos, M-E-T-O-K-I-C-H-O-S. And I just want to look at this word for a minute because it's important for us to understand the conditional nature of what it is we can choose not to or not to be. Metakos. Well... Let's look at Ecclesiastes 4.10. I'm going to again appeal to the uh, LXX. So I'm looking for an Old Testament use of a New Testament Greek word. Ecclesiastes 4.10. And we're going to see this word metakos in this 4.10 in, uh, in LXX. For if they fall, oh sorry, let's start with nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who's alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Metakos, which word do you think is metakos? Companion, right. Okay, so is companion based on going to heaven or not? What's companionship here based on? Fellowship. Fellowship. Yeah, whether you're actually in, actually doing life together with this person. Whether you're uh, joined as a partner in, in enterprise together. Let's look at um, Hosea 4, 17. 
Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Hosea 4.17 is, sorry, it's not Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Ezekiel, Daniel. Is it Ezekiel, Daniel? It is, okay. I was singing a little song in my head. It's the only way I can do stuff like that. I still sing the ABC song in my head. 417, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Metacost there is joined, companioned with, partnered with. <clears throat> Ephraim was, is a chosen tribe. We see, we, you can read Revelation, you can see there's going to be an Ephraim tribe in the new earth. But in this experiential uh, choice that Ephraim had made, Become a companion with idols. See, we can become partnered with most anything. Also in the LXX, we see when uh, they translate David and Jonathan. And Jonathan is having the interaction with Saul, uh, where Saul gets mad at him and throws the spear. Saul says, you son of a, of a uh, what's he call him, a, a wayward woman or something like that. Uh, we would have a different phrase for it in our terminology, but uh, he said, you, you, you've chosen David as your companion instead of your own kingdom. You're partnering with David instead of your own kingdom, instead of me. It's companionship, partnership, who you keep company with. You know the word company uh, is uh, two Latin words, pan means bread. You go to Panera Bread Company, it's pan is bread, and com is together. To eat bread together. That's the idea. It's fellowship. And that's this word metakos. It's people that are doing life together, having company together, a partnership of law firm, doctors that are working together in practice. That's the idea here, metakos. There's five uses of this in the New Testament I found. One is in Luke 5.17. Let's look at Luke 5.17. Luke Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching Jesus that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judah, 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 Judea, and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was there to heal them. I don't see anything that looks like Metacos. I wonder if I got the wrong... Oh, 5-7. That's what the wrong was. No wonder. Five, seven. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats, so they began to sink. Okay, so that's even a, a translation they use, partners. There's a fishing, fishing company. They've got this fishing business together. And if you're in a fishing business together, what do you do? Fish together, fish together by doing what? What's the key thing you do if you fish together? You've got to all get in the same boat, right? Okay, this is this is this is metacos. Are you in the same boat, seeking a common objective together? So now let's go to Hebrews because metacos shows up five times in Hebrews. It's a very important t- t- term. And we're going to see this term again when we get to chapter six. One of the uh, passages that tends to be to to stump people. And it's going to be a very important word there as well. It shows up in one nine, one nine. But to this, I'll start in eight. But to the Son, He says, "Your throne, O God, is forever and ever." Uh, this is one of the places, perhaps the only place in the New Testament that calls Jesus God directly. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, your God, God, therefore God, Jesus, your God, the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your 
companions, Metacos, the guys in the boat with him. There is this need to restore creation back to what God intended it to be. The whole creation's groaning for it. We're part of that, what it's groaning for, for us to take the spot that we're supposed to take. But when that happens, there's going to be one that's going to be above all the other, the captain of our salvation. That's Jesus. Metacos, companions. The next time it comes up is in 3.1, where we started today. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, companions of the heavenly calling, companions as in in company, partners of the heavenly calling, are you in the same boat with Jesus to pursue this heavenly calling to restore? Is that where you are? 3.14, the passage that we were uh, looking at a little earlier. We are partakers of Christ if... We are companions with Christ if... We're, we're part of His company, we're part of His fishing team if we continue to the end. If you're out fishing with, a, with your friends and you have this big catch and you're hauling it in and one of the guys says, Oh, it's 5 o'clock, jumps in the water and swims to the beach. What do you think of that guy? He's a jerk, okay? He left, you, he left before the job was done, right? Well, we are partners. We're, we're partners in this calling, this kingdom calling, this kingdom building company, this kingdom building partnership. We're partners with Jesus in that if we finish. That's the point. We'll get to the other instances of partakers over the next couple of weeks. So now, let's look at chapter 4. And we're going to talk about another phrase he uses for finish. This, he's got so many different ways to talk about finishing in this book that, I, I don't know, it's, it's amazing. That's, that's mainly what he's talking about, how to finish. Finish the job. And in this chapter... The, the phrase that he uses for finishing the job is to enter my rest. Now let me just show you before we read this, so you have this in your mind. Let me show you verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. For he's spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. What, what, where's that quote come from? Genesis, creation, okay, chapter 2. So when Jesus was finished, what did he do? He stopped, right? Okay. Why didn't he stop on the third day? He wasn't finished. Why didn't he stop on the fourth day? He wasn't finished, okay? He didn't stop on the first day. He didn't stop on the fifth day. He stopped after the sixth day because that's when he was finished. That's the point here. You stop when you're finished, not halfway between. That's what he means by enter his rest. Okay, so let's just read it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to propose this is real confusing if you read it like we typically read it. But I'm, gonna, I'm going to offer a, a way of looking at it that I hope will be uh, enlightening. Therefore, okay... Uh, therefore what? Let's just go up to 3.16. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry? With, now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey. So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. They didn't finish, so they didn't get the reward. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, 
not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said, So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this place they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it's been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself ceased from his works, as God did from his. Okay? So let's look at a few things here. The first thing that can be confusing is the word gospel. Again, because of our Billy Graham-ish sort of immersion... We tend to think of gospel only in terms of the four spiritual laws and new birth. Obviously, the people who had the gospel preached first to them in this, uh, in this verse are who? They had the gospel preached to them as well as to us. Who's they? Israelites. Israelites at what point in time? In the desert. Okay, the Israelites in the desert. Was Billy Graham there? Do we know about any evangelistic crusades? Anybody walk forward? Pledge cards? Um, have any uh, navigator studies? Follow-up? Church attendance? See, n- none of that was present. What was the good news? And gospel just means good news, right? It's a generic term. It's not a technical term. And you can have good news about most anything. We've got good news about our building. We're going to get to move in it to it. That's good news. So, what was the good news that these people got in the wilderness? What was the good news they got? The land is yours if you'll take it. The land's yours if you'll take it. Now, when did God give that land? Abraham. He gave it to Abraham. How long ago was that before? Yeah, 450 years earlier. He took Abraham up to the top of this mountain. He said, look at all this. It's all yours. I'm giving it to you when? Right now. It's yours. Right now. But it took 450 years before they took possession of it. Even though the grant had happened before. So, here's the good news. I'm going to take you out of slavery in Egypt. And I'm going to give you a land to possess where you're going to reign. You're going to reign in this land. And I'm calling you to be a holy nation and a priesthood so that every nation that comes through this corridor of trade, there were two major trade routes and went right through Israel. It was like the world's best toll booth. And every nation that comes through, all these people traping through, they're going to see what it's like to live the way I tell you to live. And that's the way the world is blessed. Because this is all about restoration. And you're going to be the ones that show it to them. If you'll do what I ask you to do. And what I'm asking you to do is stay in the land and follow my word. And if you do, I'll bless you so much your cattle won't even miscarry. That was the good news. And what they did with that good news, we'll look at a bit later. But the, the summary is, they didn't mix it with faith, and so they didn't, didn't do them any good. Now, did God discard those people as being His people? Did He discard the people in the wilderness? I don't, you're, you're not mine anymore? No, He didn't do that. What did He do with the people in the wilderness? He provided for them. How did He provide for them? Bread from heaven. 
Okay, they, they got miraculous bread. H-E-B happened to them just free, popped up in the, in the morning. They go out and they gather it up. It's theirs. What else did he do? Clothes, the 40 years of clothes didn't wear out. They didn't have to go to Walmart. It just, they just had it. And he gave them miraculous water, water from a rock in the middle of this wilderness. He cared for them. They're still his people. But they didn't get to have the inheritance because the word wasn't mixed with faith. Now, in Joshua, we see that when Joshua had conquered the land, the phrase that's used is, and the land had rest. It had rest from war. There was a rest of Joshua because Joshua and his generation did take the promise. And it did profit them. But and they didn't they didn't completely finish the job, but they finished the part of the job that was theirs to do. So Joshua entered the rest. But the author here, Paul says, there's another rest. If that's all there was, he wouldn't have talked about another rest. So let's look at verse 3. And this is the next confusing thing. Because it says, For we who have entered, I'm sorry, for we who have believed do enter that rest. So that sounds like we're there and we get it. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, you shall not enter the rest. Which sounds like we're not going to get it. So that's kind of confusing, right? We who have believed do enter that rest. Just like he said, you're not getting it. It's kind of what that sounds like. So here's what I propose the answer to this little puzzle is. When you look at, as he has said, don't just look at the next sentence. What you do is you look, as he has said, you're going to get a whole parenthetical. and You've got to look at the whole parenthetical. For we who have believed do enter that rest. Let's do cling to that. That's really important. We do enter that rest. Here's how. Here's how it works. As he said. And let's take the whole parenthetical. Point one. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. So he has finished his works and rested. But even though he's finished his works and rested, what is remaining to be done? God has finished his works and rested, but what's remaining to be done? Yeah, for us to benefit from it. He granted the land to Abraham, but what was remaining to be done? Him to possess it. Verse 6, since therefore it remains, some must enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter. So some are going to benefit from this and some are not. Here's the thing. The entering of the rest, the work, is not up for grabs. Now this is a huge point. It's not up to us to determine whether all things are going to be restored or not. Now, I don't know about you, but don't you feel a little weight come off your shoulders when I say that? It's not up to us who all is going to be saved and, and enter into the kingdom and, and, be, and be new birth. That's not up to us. God can use a rock if He needs to. He can use a donkey to give the message if He wants to. As a matter of fact, Romans says, have they not all heard? Yes, they've all heard. The heavens declare the glory of God. Nature is enough. It's not up to us. God has already finished the work. It's a done deal. The world is going to be restored. And there's going to be a new earth. And all things are going to be put right. The big question is, are we going to be His companions in making that happen? Are we going to participate? Are we going to follow his, his example and get the glory and honor that He wants us to have along with Him because we did it with Him? 
That's the question. Are we going to benefit from it? The question wasn't, is Israel going to be occupied by the Jews? The question was, are you, this generation, going to be the ones that do it? The word mixed with faith. Well, so, what's your point? Look at verse 14. Seeing then... Oh, sorry, 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, to finish, to do what God's asked us to do. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. What example? What example of disobedience are we talking about? Israel, in the, de- in the desert. For the word of God is living and powerful sharper than two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and as a discerner and thoughts of intentions of the heart. This is, you can't use a substitution here. You can't use some sort of a, of a game here to fake this. We, God knows. He knows our heart. And there's no creature hidden from His sight. And all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. See, He's looking. If every transgression and disobedience received a just reward in the Old Testament, how much more do you think now that Jesus is the one speaking? Well, that's a little overwhelming. So, He then says, Seeing then, we have a great high priest... He introduced the high priest in four one. Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Oh, he didn't. Sorry about that. He did it in three. So since we have this high, great high priest, which has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son, let us hold fast our confession. Remember Psalm one ten that we looked at. Jesus is the Son. The Messiah is the Son, and He's also the High Priest. And the High Priest is our passageway to get through all of these problems that we have. So let's look at this example of disobedience that we don't want to follow. It actually says in the uh, Old Testament when God says, Okay, I've had enough. Your generation doesn't get to go in. He says, You know, you've tested me ten times. And I, th- I think that's really um, telling us two things. You can, you can find places in the Bible where it says, ten times you've done this. You've changed my wages ten times, Jacob says. And I think we would say something a little different. We'd say, I've told you this a million times. Okay? It's, it's, a, it's a way of saying, I've repeated this over and over again. So I think that's part of the meeting. But it's interesting that actually God gives us ten specific examples where the children of Israel disobeyed. So let's just go through some of these and look at them because we don't want to follow this example. We do not want to follow the example of disobedience. We want to follow the opposite. We want to follow the high priest. So let's look at Exodus chapter 14. This is the first example of disobedience. 14 verse 10 Exodus 14, verse 10, And when Pharaoh drew near, so this is, they're now in the, in the passing through the Red Sea. They just watched the Red Sea part. They're going through the Red, they've gone through the Red Sea. They turn around and looking. Um, oh, sorry, I'm wrong. They're camping by the sea. Apologize for that. Camping by the sea. And, and Pharaoh draws near. And the children of Israel lift up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there are no graves in Egypt, have you taken us to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Okay? So God had miraculously delivered them from Egypt. Ten plagues. The plagues hit the Egyptians and not them. They get lavished with gold and silver and they stuff their pockets full of it and they leave Egypt and they're all happy and they get to the edge of the Red Sea and they turn around there's an army there and their response is what? Yeah, let's go. Why why did you do this though? Whose idea was this? Whose idea was... Moses, 
you got to go, Moses. Okay, you're, you're, you're way off base here. This is not what we signed up for. Okay, give me a generic way of describing this disobedience. Give me a generic way of describing this. Blame. Blame. Okay, I'm blaming somebody for what? Bad situation. How do I know it's bad? It's not what I wanted. I'm in a situation I didn't want to be in, and it's somebody's fault. It's a, I'm a victim. I'm a victim because I didn't get what I want. This is a situation I didn't sign up for. It's hard. It's dangerous. I want comfort. Now, do you in your life ever find yourself in a position that you didn't really want to be in? And what's your reaction? Do you blame anybody? Do you blame God? This is the example of disobedience we don't want to follow. Let's go to the next one. Exodus 16. I just licked my finger before I did my swipe. Uh, Exodus, sorry, 15, verse uh, 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out to the wilderness ashore. Now they just saw... The, them delivered from the Red Sea. He parted the Red Sea. They got across. They're delivered from Pharaoh. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name was, of it was called Marah. Now, you can put yourself in these people's shoes. I've actually been to the wilderness they wandered in for 40 years. At least that's what they think. And let me tell you, if there's a flat spot big enough to put your whole foot without stepping on a rock, I don't think I found it. It's the most it makes Midland look like a paradise. It's just rocks and rocks and more rocks, and there's just hardly anything living there. And it was really funny. Our guide took us down there. He didn't tell us what to expect or anything, and he took us down there. And after one hour, you know what everybody in our group was doing? One hour. Can you guess? Complaining. complaining. Yes, that's right. We were all complaining. And I thought to myself, I'm never gonna I'm never gonna look down my nose at these people again. <laughs> they at least made it three days. <laughs> we just made it an hour and we had we had liters of water, you know, stuck at the bottom of our backpacks. So it's three days and they go and say, Water. Oh, thank goodness. And they run up there and they look at the water and it's bitter. Okay? So what would you call that? How would you feel if you, if that, what? Disappointed. You'd be really disappointed, right? And when you feel disappointed, what do you do? Complain. And the people complained against Moses saying, what are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree and he cast it in the waters and the water were made sweet. So when you're disappointed, what do you do? Do you complain? This is, the, this is the example of disobedience we don't want to follow. Let's look at the very next chapter. They journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. So they're out, you know, 45 days or something. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Okay, what would you generically call this? Whining, okay? Whining. And why are they whining? They're comparing their old life with their new circumstances. Back in the good old days, we had it so wonderful. Now, what are they forgetting? They were slaves. They were working seven days a week making bricks. And their their male children were being killed. Okay? But all they're remembering is we used to sit by pots and they had meat in them. When you get in a tight spot and it's really uncomfortable, do you 
long for the good old days? Do you long for Ronald Reagan? Okay? This is not the example of disobedience that we want to follow. Let's go on down further in chapter 16, verse, uh, let's say, 17. Uh, so God has given them manna. And they went out and gathered the matter, some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered it much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered according to one's need. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it till morning. And it bred worms and stank. What are they doing here? Hoarding. Hoarding. Does anybody watch those things on TV, the hoarding deals? Where people fill their houses full of stuff. What is that? What is that, hoarding? Trying to meet your own needs. Trying to meet your own needs, okay. And it's actually trying to, trying to be in control... It's actually trying to meet your needs by being in control of something. That's really what it is. You know, they tell me that uh, homeless people, those shopping carts that they roll around or their bags that they have, a lot of times there's just worthless junk in those things. But by controlling that, they feel better. What do you do with your money? What do you do with your possessions? Do you hoard them? Are you trying to make your life better in the future? By holding on and clinging to your possessions. Maybe it's not just material possessions. Maybe it's a relationship, a person. This is an example of disobedience that we don't want to follow. Well, I think I'll pick up here next week. And uh, we'll keep going on with these examples. What do you notice about these examples? Uh, you okay? They're real foreign to you. You never do any of them, okay? Aren't they all everyday life type things? You notice none of these things are like uh, limited to church type stuff. There's nothing in here about volunteering for Sunday school. We can probably fit it in there someplace, okay? There, there's nothing in here about church attendance. Yeah, although I think you know, there's there's probably a uh, a connection with something. But this is this is holistic, very holistic of life. These things. And, and the answer to every one of these things is not going to be to get out of the problem. God gave them these problems. The, the, the difficulty is the way that they address the problem. And how did they address the problem? They tried to control their own circumstances, right? They tried to make it better. They, they, they thought they knew best. And all through this book, the answer is going to be the same. The way you get through problems, the way you get through difficulties, is to approach the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Why? Because that's where the high priest is. And he went through all this stuff. He knows what you're going through. He has immense empathy with what you're is transpiring in your life and He will help you get through it. But He's not going to help you get through it by making things comfortable for you necessarily with circumstances. What He's going to do is help you get through it by cleansing your heart of junk. The Jews had... We'll see this in chapter 9 and 10. But we can't, can't, can't repeat it too much. The Jews had a ceremony where they would go in once a year and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And it was for sins committed in ignorance. And Jesus says, or sorry, Paul says, Jesus actually did that for us in the real temple in heaven. He's there. He, he opened the way for us to go in ourselves rather than having a, a person go in for us. And we don't, but we don't need his blood sprinkled for uh, sins because he did that once for all. What we need it for is to have our conscience cleared so that we can do good works. And this access to high priest, this dependence on Jesus, the author of our salvation, the captain of our salvation, the first and the last, 
the beginning and the end, the one who has the reward in his hands, the one who wants to lead us to glory as one of the many sons, not trying to control our circumstances, not complaining, but looking unto him. The joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down. He was crowned with glory and honor. That's who we approach to find grace to help in time of need. This is the answer. The alternative is to follow this appetite-driven, complaining, all-about-me, childish approach to life. That's the example of disobedience. It's a word of exhortation to friends. Why? Because he's mad at them? No, he's not mad at them. Why? Because he... he uh, is uh, condemning them? No, he's not condemning them. Why? Because he wants what's best for them. They're his friends. He wants them to be to to hear, not to be hard of hearing, so that so that they can gain the most benefit from life. What we're talking about here is fulfillment. We were made to live at a very high level of stewardship, and there's a path to get there. It's a heroic adventurous, amazing life. And he doesn't want us to miss out on it. And the way we miss out is following our own kind of fleshly ways. And the way we get there is through the high priest. God, I pray that you'll just really help us see these children of Israel and this example of disobedience in a way that brings it home. Help us set that aside follow this amazing path you've blazed for us. We know we can't do it, but help us rely on you and find your power and and your capacity for life that you can make it happen for us. Please help us see how to obey. Please help us see how to follow. Thank you, God, for the chastising you give us to put us on the right path. Thank you for this book that you left behind that is so encouraging to us, that elevates us up to such a high plane of living if we'll just avail ourselves of it. In Jesus' name, amen.